Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Thursday, August 23rd, 2012. All right, should be an interesting program. Checking my notes. I'm going to have to save email until tomorrow. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And one of the major culprits is subjectivity. And what I mean by that is this, okay? Um, If you've been a listener to the program for any length of time, you've probably heard me use this illustration before, and I apologize for the redundancy, but it makes the point. And here's the idea, is back in the day when I was young, skinny, um, didn't have any gray hair, and uh, was a first-year Bible college student, I was uh, taking Greek I was taking apologetics, philosophy. I mean, my my schedule was packed. I mean, I had no business doing what I was uh, what I was going to describe to you here. But uh, I was living in Azusa, California, and commuting to Irvine on a daily basis in order to take classes and uh, things like that. So I spent spent part of my day in Irvine, part of my day at work. At that time, I still worked at Focus on the Family, and uh, at our apartment in Azusa. We got a knock on the door, and a knock on the door went like that, and uh, wouldn't you know it, it, it was the Mormon missionaries. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't have time for this. I just, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. But I got into a conversation with them. And, um, and so in the course of my conversation, they really, 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 really wanted me to read the Book of Mormon. And I said, okay, sure. All right, I you know I don't know how I'm going to fit this into my time, but sure I'll go ahead and read the Book of Mormon. But I'm going to need a few weeks because you know I'm in college, and so you know I'll just add this into my already packed schedule. No problemo. I don't know how I fit it in anyway. And so you know a few weeks went by, and they came back at the appointed time. And the reason why they wanted me to read the Book of Mormon is because they were absolutely convinced that if I would read the Book of Mormon, that that inside of my heart. 
I would somehow know that the Book of Mormon is true. And so, uh, you know, they, you know, after they came back, we were sitting down in my living room and one of them, you know, I mean, seriously, he was so excited. I mean, he was looking at me like I was his, you know, junior high prom date. Anyway, he looks at me and he goes, so what'd you think? What'd you, what'd you feel when you, uh, when you read the Book of Mormon? And I went, you know, it's funny that you'd say that because weirdest thing would happen. Every time I opened up the Book of Mormon, every single time, you know, it's like the, the temperature in the room got colder and, and the lights, they got really like dimmer and dark and it was it was weird. I'd, it was like I was feeling the sheer presence of evil in the room. And no sooner had I said that, this guy blurts out. I mean, no kidding. He, he goes, well, you're not reading it right. <laughs> it's like, well, what happens when you read the Book of Mormon? He says, well, I prayed and I asked Heavenly Father to give me a testimony as to the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. And I bear you my testimony that I've had a burning in my bosom confirming that the Book of Mormon is true. And it's like... Okay, well, um, your subjective experience is the polar opposite of my subjective experience, so we ain't going to get anywhere this way. I mean, we're going to have to put all of our feelings aside, and we're going to have to look at objective, verifiable evidence. Objective evidence is to the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. That means we're going to have to look at archaeology. We're going to have to look at history. We're going <clears> to <throat> have to spend some time... You know, really outside of ourselves and our feelings. And, and I ended up studying Mormonism, you know, with those two Mormon missionaries for a long, long time. That, that's really where I learned Mormonism from. You know, I knew something about it, uh, you know, through the ministry of Walter Martin. But it wasn't until, you know, I sat down and I learned Mormonism from these guys that I really learned what Mormonism was. But the point, the point is this, is that once you slip into the subjective... There's no way to verify or disprove somebody's subjective experiences. And so, I mean, let me let me give you another example that hits a little bit closer to the things we've been doing here at Fighting for the Faith for the past few weeks. Okay. We've had Charlotte Buzigard um, claim that God, the Holy Spirit, told her that we need to be taking up gongs and the sitar, and we need to embrace these musical instruments because... God told her that we need to to do these things. And you go, yeah, I remember that. And then we got, you know, we've got the, you know, the, the Dennis Walker and his wife claiming that God the Holy Spirit told them that we all have a garden that exists in the second heaven that we're supposed to be tending to. And you're going, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And then, you know... Then we've had the uh, the breakfast with Jesus thing. You know, you're supposed to sit and listen to having breakfast with Jesus. Now, but see, you're sitting there going, "Yeah, I I get where you're going with this." But then here's the th- here's the issue. Okay, Perry Noble teaches us to do the same technique that well, Lynn Walker and Dennis Walker and Charlotte Buzigard and and well Patricia King and those folks are telling us to do to. So while we're praying, apparently stop what we're doing and listen to the silence and try to divine what God is speaking into our hearts. My, my question for you is, how is that any different, any different than what, well, Charlotte Busigard, Patricia King, Den, Dennis and Lenny Walker are t- t- telling us? 
The answer, there is no difference. And my question then, kind of a follow-up to that one is, how would Perry Noble, since he also teaches these listening prayers, how would, uh, well, Rick Warren, who also teaches these listening prayers, how would they have any right to claim that may, that what Charlotte Buzigard heard regarding you know gongs and sitars was not God the Holy Spirit? How would, what what criteria would they do that with? How would they be able to say, listen, it wasn't God the Holy Spirit who told Dennis and Lenny Walker about the uh, you know having breakfast with Jesus and, and tending our garden in the second heaven? But see the thing, they could sit there and go, well. The, the, I don't believe that. Well, they heard it while doing the same technique that you do. The same technique that you do is you sit in silence and listen for God the Holy Spirit. They were sitting in silence and listening to God the Holy Spirit, and that's what they heard. So is that from God or not? You see, you know, at this point, there's no objective criteria. Are we to say that the subjective, spiritualish experiences of Perry Noble and Rick Warren, those are true. But the subjective, spiritualish experiences of Todd Bentley, Patricia King, that those aren't true? On what basis are we to make such a claim? You know, and so, it, you know, it, the answer, by the way, the answer to the question as far as biblical Christianity is concerned, it's real simple. You test everything against the Word of God. Everything gets tested against the Word of God, and your subjective experiences are not a supplement to the Bible. Your subjective experiences are to be judged by the Bible, and the Bible is not to be judged by your subjective experiences. That's how this works, because in Scripture we have an objective truth. It's outside of us, and it is the standard for Things regarding revelation pertaining to God, salvation, righteousness, what a good work is, all of that stuff, it's there for us in Scripture. Now you're going, well, how do you know the Scriptures are true, Chris? Which is a fine question to ask. The answer is really simple. I say, not me, but Scripture teaches, that the Bible can be trusted because it has the stamp of approval upon it from none other than God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. For in the scriptures there are four biographies which teach us and tell us about a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. He claimed to be none other than the God of the Jews in human flesh. And um, when challenged regarding you know what authority he had to prove to do the things that he was doing, he said, destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. The temple he was referring to was the temple of his body. So the proof that Jesus gave regarding his authority to say and do the things that he said and did, claiming to be God, it all lies in an objectively verifiable historical event. And the event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the, on the third day from the grave. So if Jesus is still in the ground, if you can find his moldering bones somewhere in the Judean countryside, then Christianity isn't true, regardless of what you feel about it. Feelings don't play into it. And so because Jesus rose from the grave, we can then look at what he taught regarding Scripture. And he said that it's the very word of God that heaven and earth will not pass away 
Uh, Sorry, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will not pass away. So Jesus claims that all the Old Testament's the word of God, and he claimed that the writings of the the apostles, uh, that he would send the Holy Spirit who would recall all things to mind. And so the idea is, is that Jesus puts a stamp of approval on the writings, all the writings of the Old Testament, and on the apostolic writings that were forthcoming. Everything hinges on the veracity and the basically whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the grave. If he's still dead, and uh, he, he ain't God, regardless of what you feel. However, if he truly rose again, according to the eyewitness testimony, then he is who he claimed to be, none other than God in human flesh. And we're to have no less of an opinion regarding Scripture than Christ has. That would be foolishness. So, we go into Scripture... And we use what we know to be from God to test all new so-called revelations that claim to come from God to see if they square with Scripture. And oftentimes, in fact, (laughs) I think we're batting almost like a thousand here. It's like 99.99%. Um, the, uh, the, The people who are claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God, they ain't. How do I know? Because the message they bring is not the same as Scripture. They're not saying the same thing as the Word of God regarding salvation, proper distinction of law and gospel, what the gospel is, what the church's mission is. They've got all this other stuff that they're doing and things that they're saying that don't square. As a result of it, I can say definitively, these people ain't hearing from God. They may be hearing from the devil. They may be self-deceived. But the one thing they're not, they're not doing is they're not actually hearing from God the Holy Spirit. When Charlotte Buzigard says that God the Holy Spirit told her we need to be banging gongs and playing sitars in order for there to be some kind of weird quantum healing thing going on in church, I can tell you definitively she didn't hear from God the Holy Spirit. She heard from somebody else because that teaching is not in Scripture and it doesn't square with Scripture. It's to be rejected. So I don't care how sincere you are. I don't care how intense your religious experience was. Your religious intense experience is to be judged by the Word of God, not the other way around. And the problem is is that so many people are rejecting the written Word of God because their experiences run counter to it when they sh- what they should be doing is rejecting their subjective experiences and clinging to the word of god something to think about okay let's uh, talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of fighting for the faith going to mix things up a little bit here today and the reason is this is that i have another stephen furtick um update that i got to do i don't normally uh it's not back to back episodes of fighting for the faith there was the light edition in between but i you know, I try to make a point of not necessarily going after the same person, you know, back to back. I like to space things out a little bit. Otherwise, it just looks like I'm picking on him. But I'm not picking on Furtick because he just needs to be picked on. It, it's, it's that, uh, you know, let's just say a video surfaced that uh, we've got to play that I think explains so much of what's going wrong in his theology. So we got, uh, in the second half of this first hour, we've got a Perry Noble update. We've got a Stephen Furtick update. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead off with a little bit of news. We're going to lead off with a little bit of news, uh, you know, and, you know, to kind of ease into the program. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to take a quick look at what the Scripture teaches regarding the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast, you know, Revelation chapter 13. And there's a reason for this. 
um, is that in the course of my lifetime, I have seen people um, make some, well, pretty, uh, it's, well, the, the paranoid claims regarding the mark of the beast. You know, I remember there were people teaching that it's going to be barcodes, um, you know, and, and now the, I've seen people claiming that it's going to be RFID chips implanted under human skin. And, and there was a recent uh, news story uh, about a mother who's pa- panicking because the elementary school that her child is going to is going to be using hand scanners uh, to, uh, you know, to basically deduct money from lunch accounts uh, for students at the at the school. And she's threatening to take her kids out of school because she's concerned regarding the mark of the beast. So we're going to take a look at the mark of the beast tonight. I need to point something out to you scripturally so that you y- 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 don't make the same mistake. Um, we're, so we're going to do that. Uh, it got news regarding Todd Bentley. And then I've got a Perry Noble update and a Stephen Furtick update. So what, we're going to just dive into the program proper. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers are in order, and uh, they do enhance your listener experience. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to be enslaved to that good gift that God has given us. And with that, we're diving into the program. Here we go. Okay, from Hood News 24-7, the uh, headline reads, Mark of the Beast Hand Scanner uh, Placed in Elementary School. Yeah, Mark of the Beast Hand Scanners Placed in Elementary School. Let me play the news story for you, and then uh, we'll, we'll take a look at Scripture. And I'm going to point something really important out for you so that you don't end up being paranoid regarding certain types of technologies. Here we go. A local elementary school is trying to implement a new program in its cafeteria, but the palm vein scanner is being met with opposition from parents. KPLC's Holly Carter brings us details. I was very, very mad, disappointed. Many parents felt that way Monday after reading a letter sent home with their children from Moss Bluff Elementary School. The letter introduced a new program, the Palm Vein Scanner, much like this one, to move students through the lunch line at a faster rate. With almost 1,000 students, Principal Charles Calderera says the system will reduce errors. We're so large, and with an elementary school, they all come through line, the line, and most of them eat here. And most of them eat here, so it will make us more efficient and, and more accurate. We, we, we've had parents complain in the past because they felt like their children weren't eating, that we assigned them a charge for the day, and they might have been right. Calderera says the school is acting on recommendation from School Food Service Director Patricia Hoseman, but he says the letter gives parents an option. We sent this letter home for parents to be aware of it and to let them know that they can opt out. They can opt out and say, hey, I don't want my child involved in it, and that's quite all right. And it won't make any difference. The children will still be able to eat in the cafeteria. Sonia says she's against the palm vein scanner because of her beliefs. As a Christian, I've read the Bible and, you know, go to church and stuff, and, you know, I know where it's going to end up coming to and the mark of the beast, and I'm not going to let my kids have that. Calderera says a lot of parents agree with her, but he says it's just technology. I think a lot of this has to do with religious beliefs. Uh, I think uh, some people feel something with the Bible, Mark of the Beast, uh, 
It's technology that's used throughout our lives everywhere. He says the system isn't on campus yet, so students' palms won't be scanned anytime soon. But Sonia says if the program comes to campus, her children aren't participating and won't be around it either. I'll probably pull them out of, out of that school and transfer them to another school. Really? Yeah. At your service in Moss Bluff, Holly Carter, KPLC 7 News. Okay, so that's the uh, that's the news story, and here's the problem. Okay, here's the problem: is that there's a lot of sensationalistic stories that have been circulating literally for decades, always trying to speculate about um, the mark of the beast. Okay, let's take a look at the biblical text, and the reason why is because when you see what's happening in the biblical text, you'll realize that there's a very important ingredient missing from the palm vein. Scanner. Revelation chapter 13, starting at verse 11. Here's what it says. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked um, on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Okay, Now, that's the critical part. So here's the idea. Okay, Let's postulate for a second that this palm vein scanner ultimately is going to be the technology used globally um, by by the uh, Antichrist and his government. You know, assuming that uh, these are not just symbols, but you know that a particular eschatological worldview or per- position regarding the literal Antichrist is this is what's coming. So that's the idea, and so there's a global world religion that worships the false. The false beast, the false antichrist, right? Okay. Here's the idea, is that even if the technology is the same technology that's going to be used, the important thing is, is that in this technology being deployed at like an elementary school or a cafeteria or anywhere, what it doesn't do is require you to worship the beast, worship the antichrist. And that's the whole point. The whole point of taking the mark of the beast is that it's a sign of allegiance. It's a way of worshiping. It's a way of basically saying, I believe that the beast is God and I worship God. And by doing so, you are then marked. If you refuse to worship the beast, then you don't take the mark. And according to this, the many who refuse to take the mark will be slain. So what's missing here is this this is just a technology for a lunchroom. Barcodes on your groceries, that's a technology to help get you through the uh, the checkout line quicker. Okay? 
it doesn't it doesn't matter if ultimately the technology that's going to be used by the antichrist and all this kind of stuff is either barcodes or hand, palm hand scanners the reality is is that there's no oath or allegiance here that is being necess- necessitated upon these kids they're not having to worship the image of the beast okay and swear their allegiance to them uh, to him and to claim that he is god they're merely checking out of the lunch line using a technology you see what i'm saying so with that it, regardless of what technology is is ultimately going to be used in such a system, what's missing now is the allegiance. And so there's no way to ha- – using a, a palm hand scanner does not equal worshiping the beast, plain and simple. And so without that element, the technology is – is it's harmless. There's There's – you're not swearing allegiance to the beast, the dragon, the whore, or anything like that. Nothing of the sort. And so you can go ahead and use such a thing. But in the future, what will, what would happen then is that when the beast, the Antichrist, emerges on the scene, he would then require you to worship him and in so doing take the mark and without the mark you can't buy or sell you you get what i'm saying that's what's going on there in this passage and so when you hear about palm hand scanners or barcodes or things like that um don't worry about it don't worry about it unless somebody says you can't use this palm hand scanner unless you worship me then you've got a different story altogether. So, you know, it's just, it's important to keep these things separate and to understand that biblically what's being said there has to do with refusing to worship Satan. Anyway, next headline um, from The Guardian in the UK. The headline reads, Revivalist preacher Todd Bentley refused entry to the UK. Uh, evangelist who boasted of curing uh, people of diseases, including cancer, by using physical force, is denied a visa for his UK tour. An evangelist preacher who has claimed he can cure people of their illnesses by hitting and kicking them has been banned from entering the United Kingdom by the Home Office. Todd Bentley, a controversial revivalist healer based in the United States, has uh, has been due to hold a series of gatherings in England, Wales, and North Ireland in the next few weeks. But the Home Office said Bentley, a Canadian citizen, was subject to an exclusion order and would not be permitted to enter the country. We can confirm that Mr. Bentley has been excluded from the UK. The government makes no apologies for refusing people access to the UK if we believe that they are not conducive to the public good. Coming here is a privilege that we refuse to extend to those who might seek to undermine our society, the Home Office said. Bentley, a 36-year-old former drug addict who, at the age of 13, sexually assaulted a minor, reacted angrily to the decision, surprise, uh, writing on his church's Facebook page, what about all the other celebrities, musicians, and others with more colorful past than me that are permitted into the UK for shows? Is this really about my past and fear of potential violence or freedom of religion and attack on faith, God, and healing? Let me just pause the story right there and... Say, good on the United Kingdom. Todd Bentley is somebody that you ought not to have in your um, country. I only wish that the United States would follow suit and also keep him 
from doing the same thing here in the United States. He is a Canadian, after all. Uh, no point in uh, you know in, in granting him immunity. We can basically say, yeah, it's pro- if the U- if he's not good for the UK, he's not good for the US. This is one of those times where I think. Yeah, this was a good decision. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. we got a Perry Noble update and a Stephen Furtick update on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com.
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. We're back. Uh, Warning, uh, your subjective feelings need to be governed by God's word, not the other way around. When you get those two messed up, you are in grievous danger of false doctrine. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, Perry Noble update first. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as, as long, long as, as I, I do, it do it with a flare. flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus And the scent of burning sulfur in the air I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke But they love me everywhere For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do As long as I do it with a flap And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say As long as I say it with a flare First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock And fix you with my best hypnotic stare With my moans and groans and sufferific tones They have cheered me everywhere For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say I sell it when I tell it with a Yeah, There we go. That's our uh, Perry Noble update music. And got to tell you, that's somewhat prophetic today. Uh, what we're going to be listening to, let me set this up for you. Um, Perry Noble, over the weekend, uh, preached the latest uh, installment of his House Party um, sermon series. Yeah, that's the name of the House Party sermon series. And in a kind of weird way, um, he decided to engage in what could really only be described as junior high-esque, double entendre type of shenanigans. I, yeah, no joke. See if this sounds like something that is befitting of a pastor. Uh, I'll start it from the beginning. Here we go. Man, that was awesome. I know for a shot, I mean, I know, first of all, that video pumped me up, but I know the worship 
here in Anderson, I know it had to be this way in other campuses. It was just, did y'all feel it was like another level in that song? Man, I love that. Yeah, a whole nother level, yeah. The last song we, we sang. Hey, listen, we're going to do um, a couple things today on all of our campuses. First of all, if you brought a Bible with you, we're going to go to the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to hang out. We're going we're gonna to be there. Now, if you've already looked at your scripture sheet, we're actually going to be all over the Bible today. But Acts chapter 8 is a great place that we're all going to get started. Also, we're going to do a lesson. Um, we're going to do a hooked on phonics lesson uh, because I need to do some clarification today. Everybody on all of our campuses, we're going to get hooked on phonics in church this morning. Everybody go. <laughs> Let's do that again. That sounded kind of cool. Okay. <laughs> Okay, that's great. Now, everybody go, ask. Every campus right now. And hey, if you're watching online and you're sitting in a coffee shop, you do this right now. All right? You'll get a crowd around your computer. Here we go. Ask. Now, some of you are like, why are we doing this? It's very simple. Today, I'm going to challenge you to go for the big ask. Mm-hmm. The big ask. Strange that this is the type of humor that uh, he thinks is appropriate in a church. But then again, I don't think New Spring's really a church. I had to emphasize the K because if I didn't emphasize the K on ask, somebody would send in a big ask email. And I just wanted to alleviate that. And we've done a lot of things to highlight the fact that I'm challenged in our church to go for the big ask. I'm wearing a big ask shirt. Yeah, what he means by that is that on his shirt in big green capital letters is the word ask. And everybody on every campus, you got a big ask pen right now, don't you? Everybody hold your pen up. Let me see your big ask pen. Okay, yeah. In fact, when some of y'all walked in, y'all went, that's a big ask pen. Ask. Yeah, I I don't know about you all, but if my pastor did something like that from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, I'd be finding a different church. I mean, that is, not only is it sophomore-ish, junior high-ish, I mean, in its humor, it's, it's just not appropriate in the house of the Lord. Absolutely not appropriate. Now, if you're wondering what the big ask is all about, well, Perry Noble has read Acts chapter 2, and he sees that in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people were added to the church on the day of Pentecost. And so the reason why they're having this big ask campaign is so that because they, they're asking God the next Sunday to save 3,000 people at New Spring, at all of the different New Spring locations. So that's what that is about. And it's just unbelievable that that, not only that that man is a pastor, the most unbelievable part about that is that he's considered a pastor to pastors. And so, you know, you I can guarantee you, give it just a little bit of time and you're going to have all of the little Perry Nobleite pastors running around in the seeker-driven universe telling and basically doing that same joke and making the same point. It's just unbelievable. All right, moving along.
are so vain. You probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? told you that Stephen Furtick has a ritual where he stands in front of a mirror and he says things like, I'm brave, I'm strong, I'm courageous. Would you think I was joking? Sad thing is I'm not. Now, if you're thinking, that sounds a lot like Stuart Smalley. I mean, you remember Stuart Smalley? Let me kill the music here. Remember Stuart Smalley, that uh, Saturday Night Live character? He would sit and look at himself in the mirror, and he'd say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. Well, it's weird that uh, Stephen Furtick apparently is channeling the spirit of Stuart Smalley. Now, to help uh, you understand what's going on in this video that we're going to be playing here, and uh, i got to give a hat tip, by the way, to uh, Ken Silva of Apprising Ministries for uh, posting this on his website. Um, the name, by the way, you can find this at apprising.org. It's uh, A-P-P-R-I-S-I-N-G dot org. And uh, the name of the uh, the post is, it's from August 21st, 2012. Stephen Furtick is superstitious about his word faith ritual. Anyway, in that, uh, at the bottom there, you can find, Ken Silva did a great job of actually taking the end of this video from the Sun Stand Still video series and slicing into it pieces from Stuart Smalley's Saturday Night Live comedy sketch. The, now, the fun part about Stuart Smalley is, is that it's a joke. It's satire designed to make fun of a stupid thing that's going on in the American culture. That's the fun part. The sad part is is that Stephen Furtick, no joke, part of his ritual on a regular daily basis is to look at himself in the mirror and speak affirmations. You're wondering why Stephen Furtick is a narcissist, yeah, narcissistic eisegesis. You know the story of narcissists, right? He saw his reflection and fell in love with himself. <laughs> what Stephen Furtick is doing is literally the classic mythological definition of narcissism. Is it any wonder that it creeps into the pulpit and that he twists every biblical passage, even the ones about Jesus, and make them about himself? So, to kind of uh, help us understand what is going on here, here is Stephen Furtick to introduce us to, well, his bathroom. I'll let him explain. It doesn't get any more personal than this, and taking you into my, my bathroom at my office. Because I want you to see that I practice what I preach, and I also want to help you 
get started preaching God's word to yourself. I, I want to show you how to do this. I want you to make a commitment through the rest of the time that you're reading Sun Stand Still, that every day you'll, you'll wake up and somewhere where you can see it, I want you to post a, a faith confession. Um, you, can, you can take one of the faith confessions from the book or, or maybe um, you'll identify a verse of scripture that means a lot to you or speaks to your specific area of life where you need God to make the sun stand still. And I want you to start preaching the gospel to yourself. I'm going to show you how to do that um, actually at our... Well, the gospel is the good news that Christ died for my sins. Is that what you want me to preach when I look at myself in the mirror in the bathroom? House, we have this same deal um, on her mirror at home. Holly, my wife, has the 12 audacious faith confessions that are in the book. And it's so that when she's feeling weak or... The 12 audacious faith confessions. By the way, if you don't know what the 12 audacious faith confessions are, let me read them to you from my copy of Sun Stand Still. (laughs) Number one, I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. Two, I act in audacious faith to change the world in my generation. I have no fear or anxiety. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I am able to fulfill the calling God has placed on my life. I am fully resourced to do everything God has called me to do. I have no insecurity because I see myself the way God sees me. I am a faithful spouse. If you're single, you can slip in future in there. And a godly parent, our family is blessed. I am completely whole, physically and mentally and emotionally. I am increasing in influence and favor for the kingdom of God. I am enabled to walk in the sacrificial love of Christ. I have the wisdom of the Lord concerning every decision I make. I am protected from all harm and evil in Jesus' name. Hmm. You know what's weird about those 12 audacious faith confessions is is that the phrasing sounds similar to something I recall reading in the... um, in the book of Isaiah, yeah, I think that this is uh, written, well, not written, but this is um, Satan speaking. Um, let's see here. Um, <clears throat> Satan, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the face of the far reaches of the north. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, by the way. Um, yeah, by the way, Isaiah, let me read it from Isaiah fourteen thirteen. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. Ah, uh, weird. Um, yeah, these 12 audacious faith confessions sound very, very eerily similar to what Satan was saying there in Isaiah 14. Defeated or overwhelmed and and burdened, she can remind herself what God's word says because if you align your, your mouth with God's words and you begin to speak what God says, you begin to see as he sees. And that lifts your living to a, a new Yeah, this is word of faith heresy. This is not taught in the scriptures. Level, and that enables your faith to, to rise up to the level of God's truth. And what I want us to do, this is going to be awkward, so you just need to go ahead and get over it, okay? Yeah, there's no way I'm going to do that because I'm not a narcissist. We passed awkward a long time ago when I let you see inside my bathroom. I, I want to help you begin to preach God's word. Right now, out loud, we're going to go through these faith confessions one by one. And I want you to physically speak these words with me. And as you do, feel the power of them. Realize... Oh, 
no. The potential of these words to reshape your paradigm as we go through them one by one. So whether you're watching this by yourself or with... So salvation by affirmation. Group, I want you to get ready to preach God's word. You're, you're about to be ordained as a minister of the gospel so that you can... Yeah, uh, but this isn't the gospel. Preach to yourself. The most important sermons I've ever preached have been the sermons that I looked in the mirror and preached to myself to remind myself of what God says. So, well, that explains why <clears throat> you always make the scriptures about you. It makes perfect sense. If the most important sermons you've ever preached were the ones looking in the mirror. Let's preach this together. Number one, I am fully forgiven. Now, be sure to look at the mirror while doing this. And free from all shame and condemnation. What a wonderful thought to start your day with. Because you know that throughout the day you're going to fail and you're going to come up short. But in Jesus, you're fully forgiven. Now, that's this is a gospel nugget to lead off. I mean, that's nice and all. Price is paid. You are clean and new and refreshed and loved. And when you preach that to yourself, it sets your life on trajectory for Jesus. Number two, I act in audacious faith to change the world. In my generation. Yeah, yeah. Are you looking in the mirror while saying these? Next, I have no fear or anxiety. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I love that promise. I love that. Yeah, just uh, that's the ritual. Look in the mirror and then state these affirmations. And um, here's the uh, the piece that Ken Silva put together, and I thought it was brilliant. And worth passing along um, here. You'll get it immediately as to what's going on here. Number one, I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. What a wonderful thought to start your day with. I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. Number four, I am able to fulfill the calling God has placed on my life. As you feel inadequate and as you feel limited, you begin to remind yourself that the same God who called you is going to enable you to do everything that he wants you to do. Number five, I am fully funded to do everything that God has called me to do. Next, I have no insecurity because I see myself the way God sees me. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. One by one. So whether you're watching this by yourself or with a group, I want you to get ready to preach God's word. You're, you're about to be ordained as a minister of the gospel so that you can preach to yourself. I am a faithful spouse and a godly parent. Our family is blessed. I am completely whole, physically, mentally, and emotionally. I am increasing in influence and favor for the kingdom of God. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. So there you go. Just look in the mirror and say your daily affirmations. 
Unbelievable. I mean, who would have knew? Who would have thunk that um, Stephen Furtick is really Stuart Smalley with just kind of a hipper edge to him? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, you know, th- this is not Christian theology. This is not Christian sanctification. This is not how faith in Christ is grown, matured, or anything of the sort. This is just pop psychology, psychobabble, masquerading as a biblical teaching, and it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, silly, and worse. It's fully narcissistic. And now we know exactly why Stephen Furtick narcissists every passage he comes in contact with because his daily ritual is to stand in front of the mirror and speak affirmations to himself. Stuart Smalley style. Unbelievable. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review when we get back. We're going to be going back to the Isle of Man. And I wanted to get that other sermon in. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We're going to go back to the Isle of Man and review another sermon from Living Hope Community Church there at the Isle of Man. Stuck there in the Irish Sea between uh, the UK and and, uh, Ireland. And the reason why I'm doing this sermon, by the way is because this is the typical false teaching out there regarding faith that's being kicked around by the uh, the purpose-driven and seeker-driven movements. It's actually quintessential. Let's continue here. (laughs) 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, we're going back to the Isle of Man. It comes to us via Living Hope Community Church there. And the uh, gentleman presiding, his name is Ewan Ewan McRae. He's Scottish, so I apologize for butchering his name. The name of the uh, sermon is entitled Faith, Spiritual Roots. And like I was explaining, the reason why I chose this sermon is specifically because this is a quintessential example of the false teaching regarding faith that's uh, taken over the seeker-driven movement and purpose-driven movements. I, I have so many examples of this type of preaching. I've lost track. But what's unique about this one is its lucidity and succinctness. So it makes it really easy to review in that sense. Um, even though biblically it's not a lucid Bible teaching. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, let me, in fact, let me just do this. I'm going to kill the music and we're going to just dive right into the sermon review. Here is uh, uh, Ewan McRae and uh, his sermon entitled Faith spiritual roots. Uh, you're going to need your Bible for this one, by the way. And I'm going to go ahead and play the introduction from the, uh, the, the church itself, because I think it helps, um, you know, kind of give you a radar fix on, as to the theology. Here we go. Welcome to the Living Hope Community Church podcast. We are one family with multiple locations. For more information and other great messages, please visit www.livinghope.in. Love God, love people, love life. You're going to stop there. Love God, love people, love life. Love God, love people. That is the total summary. That is the, the you know two-sentence summary of the entire Mosaic Law. That's not the gospel. That's the law. And that's the reason I played that. That's a very bad sign. If you are attending a purpose-driven or seeker-driven church and they have a mission statement that boils down to love God, love people, or and serve the community or whatever, law, law, law. It's not the gospel. That's the law. Let's continue. Big heroes. One of them was Kenny Dalgleish. Amen, brother. (laughs) I'll preach it, Sally. He's back. Back to the top we go. But the other was a lad called Jamie. Now, Jamie was seven years older than me. And he's my big brother. And he's still my hero to this day. But from a young age, Jamie would challenge my way and my perception of the world. And I remember one day... Okay, now I'm going to stop there. I'm going to point something out here. This is a sermon about faith. And this opening illustration sets the framework for how he's going to define faith. Listen carefully to what he does here. One day he came to me and he said, Ewan, I'm going to shock you. And I'm going to do something incredible this day. And I said, well, tell me, big brother... What is it that thou shalt do? And he said, I shalt jump mum's brand new Volkswagen Beetle car. Now, the Beetle was a special car. It was round-topped, and it was very, very high. It would come up to here on me. It was not a small car. Now, he's a mischievous little brother. I looked at him, and I thought... (laughs) You can't make that. He said, I can. I will jump it before your very eyes. I said, okay. Go for it. Now, in my mind's eye, 
I could see exactly what was going to happen. You see, Jamie was going to run full pelt at the car and somehow he was going to enter the car through one of the side windows, smashing it, (laughs) rippling the roof. I could see it happening. I could see the anger that my mum and dad would feel when they saw the beautiful car damaged by this big oaf who had tried to do something that wasn't possible. And so, as any good brother would do, I encouraged him. (laughs) I said, Jamie, you can do this. He ran. He went right over to the side of the garden. He lined up. He began to run. He ran faster and faster and faster. And then he took off. My chuckling was, was there in evidence. I was watching him. I can't believe he's... <laughs> Jamie cleared the car. He jumped over the whole car. And he didn't just clear it. He cleared it by about that much. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You see, I'd pretended to believe that he could do what he said he could do. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that he couldn't. You see, sometimes I believe that's exactly how we live the Christian life. Okay, so that's the illustration. He couldn't believe that his brother could do that. And so apparently this then forms the foundation for his definition of faith that's going to permeate this entire sermon. I think as followers of Jesus that we hear his promises. We hear what he says he can do. We read about the promises in the Bible. And at times we even pretend that God is good to his word. But until we see him do the impossible, our thinking is so often limited by what we can do ourselves. So apparently faith has something to do with believing the impossible? Okay. But God is so far beyond the realms of human thinking. I thought Jamie couldn't jump the car because I couldn't jump the car. But he was much bigger than I was. And what was possible for Jamie was vastly different to what was possible for me. Faith creates big thinking. It helps us to think beyond our human limitations. So faith creates big thinking. Okay, now, the fact that he's saying this without a biblical passage is already troubling. The job of a pastor is to preach the word, which means that his job is to open up a biblical text and exegete it. Okay, you'll notice that Ewan, similar to Jonathan the other day, isn't beginning in a biblical text. He's making assertions regarding faith And notice here, he's begun with an experience that he's had. He's not beginning with a clear passage and, you know, basically opening up to, you know, a passage in the Bible, reading in context, and then exegeting it and showing us what God has revealed there. So uh, faith creates big thinking, okay? Where have we heard this before, Stephen Furtick? 
We've heard it from Perry Noble. We've heard it from Mark Batterson. This is the cult, the whole foundation of the idea behind the circle maker. God is not uh, insulted by small dreams. He's insulted by anything but. That's a paraphrase, but that's the gist of what the circle maker is. Learn how to find these huge promises and circle them in your life. And, and, and think big, think audacious, change the world kind of way. Ewan is uh, making the same kind of assertion, and you're going to notice here. He, he's not preaching this from a biblical text. Now, he's going to try to shoehorn it in to some biblical texts taken out of context, but faith apparently is about believing what is possible. Faith creates big thinking beyond our human limitations. Yeah, that's not exactly correct. Let's continue. And it helps us to imagine what the God that created the universe can do. Helps us to imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, we got a problem here. Um, already we are way off course from any biblical definitions regarding faith. Hebrews 11 tells us this. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Now notice something here. By throwing Hebrews 11.6 into the mix out of context... He's making it sound like Hebrews 11.6 is basically saying, listen, unless you can think big, you know, think about what is possible, uh, have big thinking that you're not pleasing to God. By doing what he's doing, reading this verse out of context, no context is given. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so far, he's defined faith as thinking big about what's really impossible. Yikes, this is a problem. Now, I'm going to go into the text itself and clean some things up here momentarily, but I just wanted to point that out. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's what Tracy said earlier on. Spot on, sister. Earnestly seeking. Not just looking for him when we have time on our hands. God expects us to seek him earnestly. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For many of us, we try to please God in a, in a whole host of different ways. We try to obey his laws. We read the Bible and we think, well, we'll try and be a bit more like that this week. We try to increase our intellectual knowledge of who God is. We go to church because that's what Christians do on Sunday mornings. We do all the things that we have grown up observing happen in church. Now, notice what he's doing here. Somehow, he's basically saying, listen, you go to church and we get a knowledge about God. Now, I want to point something out here. Jesus in the Great Commission, here's what he said. Go and All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, is what Jesus says. Okay? So a critical component of discipleship is teaching the entire full counsel of the Word of God, all that Christ has taught. Now, I'm going to point something else also here. Christ, by saying all that I have taught you, all that I have taught you, that excludes disciples learning false teaching. 
Because if it's what Jesus taught, it's it's sound doctrine. If it's what God's word teaches, it's sound doctrine. If it's false doctrine, it's not to be in the church and it's not part of discipleship. That is what erodes faith. It destroys it. So, so already we got a problem here again because he somehow has some kind of um, anti-rational, anti-knowledge thing going on here that needs to be addressed. And, and by the way, this is flat out contradicted by Scripture. Let me give you some more passages. Philippians chapter 1, verse uh, 9, the Apostle Paul says to the church at, uh, at, at Philippi, It's my prayer for you that you may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice here, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 hooks in the fruits of the Holy Spirit to a growing knowledge of Christ through the word. Titus chapter 1, Paul writes to uh, uh, Pastor Titus, it says, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of uh, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The Apostle Paul, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right out of the chute, makes it clear that knowledge of the truth is what helps us accord with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Peter, even, you know, even Peter gets into... This type of stuff when he talks you know, first second Peter, let me second uh, Peter chapter one, verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse five. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control and steadfastness. Notice here, Peter and Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, basically hook in our progression in godliness, growth in sanctification to our knowledge of God through the word. Okay. These are important passages to keep in mind because they're contradicting really the heart and the letter of what this man is saying. Let me back it up. Here we go. We go to church because that's what Christians do on Sunday mornings. We do all the things that we have grown up observing happen in church. And some of these things are good. But God is not looking for spiritual robots. God is looking for people who will trust that when we step out, he has been in the places that we will go. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind, listen again. God is looking for what? But God is not looking for spiritual robots. God is looking for people who will trust that when we step out, he has been in the places that we will go. Um, which Bible verse says that? That's an assertion without a passage that says anything of the sort. That before we have been there, he has walked the path. You see, there's a world of difference between believing in God and believing God. 
Yeah, this again is kind of a false dichotomy and a false understanding of faith. What is saving faith? Okay, now I'm going to answer the question at this point. You know, using uh, the the the, uh, the the classic formula developed by the Reformation uh, theologians. Okay that saving faith is different than demonic faith, and there's three components to saving faith, okay? Notitia, ascensus, fiducia. Those are the, the Latin phrases to it. And here's the idea, is that you have to have faith in something. Faith is, you know, the, very, the Greek word itself, uh, the verb is pistuo, means to believe or to trust. The noun form, pistis, again, it carries with it the same idea. It's this, it's this, it's this trust it's you know what is so you if if you have trust you have to have trust in something for something or in someone for something does that make sense um and so the idea here is is that faith is like eyesight it it has an object to which it focuses itself and affixes itself so saving faith biblically First of all, uh, the notitia, it re- you have to have some knowledge of Jesus because Christian faith is faith in Christ, okay? And by the way, it's faith in Christ for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, okay? Faith and trust that what Christ was doing on the cross, that truly applies to you and to me, that he was dying for our sins, okay? So that that's the who and the what, okay? So notitia, you have to have some knowledge of who Jesus is, who he was, who he came to be, and what he did, okay? You have to have a, a, a rudimentary basic outline of, of the Christian faith, right? Of the Christian claim, of the biblical gospel. That's all the knowledge, the facts of the case, if you would. Now, second part of it is a census, okay? A census is saying, yes, the facts are true. Now, if you have notitia and a census, you know, that you, you understand that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, um, that, you know, he, you know, that he rose again on the third day uh, from, you know, bodily from the grave, um, that he, you know, the, the, the miracles he performed, he raised this, he uh, you know, raised the dead, healed the blind, you know, gave uh, gave the ability to walk to people who were lame, things like that. Those are all the knowledge of the facts, and you can say, yes, I know that those facts are true. Okay, that still is not saving faith. In fact, that's what the, you've now reached the threshold of what we would call demonic faith. Okay, the demons know the facts, and they know the facts are true, and they assent that the facts are true, and yet they're not saved. Right. Where the where the Christian then a Christian crosses into a different dimension, if you would, is the is the last part of the fiducia element of it. And here's the idea: it's a Christian doesn't say that Jesus just died for the sins of the world. A Christian is one who, by faith, or by, not by faith, but by a miracle of God, is given the faith to trust that all the things that Jesus did are for me. Okay, if you. If you are able to open up the scriptures and see the good news of Jesus Christ, that he bled and died for you, that he is the God who created you, come down to earth, incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, made man, crucified for your sins under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried, and he died for you. His death and resurrection, is are, they are for your sins and for your salvation then you have saving faith. That's the faith that grasps onto these promises of the forgiveness of sins, and you, and it's basically apprehended for you. A demon doesn't say, Christ died for me, 
but they know the a demon knows the facts of the case and knows that they're true, right? So that's the difference. We continue. Last year, as many years we have seen in Scotland, there was an almighty freeze in the country. And I was on the beautiful Isle of Mull. It's very like this island, similar size but much colder. And I was standing at the side of a huge loch. That's a loch. (laughs) And the loch was frozen. And I was standing there, unfortunately, with a male friend. And as you can imagine, two boys standing at the side of a frozen loch. What is the question that he was going to ask me? What's the question? What was he going to ask me? Anyone? Walk on it. Walk on the loch. Why do boys do that? (laughs) Girls would never do that. They'd go, isn't it pretty? (laughs) Boys don't even notice that. They just want to go out and see what happens. (laughs) You see... I couldn't deny the existence of the ice. It was there before my very eyes. But what concerned me about the ice was how strong and how thick it was. But of course, I couldn't deny the challenge. And so I stepped out and I put my foot down and I began to walk. And you know, the ice was so thick that it would have supported a small army crossing it. And maybe if some of you this morning are sitting here with some form of knowledge of the reality of God. Do you believe maybe that he is real? Yes, there is a God. But stepping out and believing that he will be where you put your foot is so different, isn't it, to believe it? Now, that's not what the scriptures teach. Now, let's, in fact, I'm going to have to interrupt here. If you have your Bible, I would like you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to point a few things out. Number one, uh, in Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews itself, context, the reason why the the, the book was written is important. The author of the book of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are not maturing in their faith and are sinking back to works righteousness, Okay. They're going back to types and shadows rather than the fulfillment of those types and shadows in Christ. Okay, uh, They're missing the smells and bells, if you would, of Judaism, of the temple worship, of the blood sacrifice, and all that kind of stuff. And the, 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 to them, Christianity is somewhat intangible in the sense that you don't have blood sacrifices anymore and, and you know all the things that go along with the Mosaic system, right? Okay, and they're they're and so they're they're in danger of basically jettisoning Christianity. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter eleven, the author of Hebrews is making an appeal to them, basically with this 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 is kind of the logic behind it. You think you Hebrews that you're going that you're going to join the company of the patriarchs, okay, by going back to legalistic works righteousness under the Mosaic law and Pharisaic kind of stuff. You know, Judaizers, if you would, okay? But in reality, you're not heading back to the patriarchs. You're departing from them. And the reason why is because the patriarchs were justified and declared righteous by God, by faith, not by works. That's the gist of it. That's what, you know, so everything up to this point is kind of making that point. And so here we get to Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith passage. And what's not, what this is not talking about, you know, faith to do the impossible 
and I'll explain this along the way. This is ultimately about saving faith and the great things they did. You know, the, the, they were able to accomplish them by faith, by trusting in the God who told, who basically called them to do these things. And I'll explain this along the way because at toward the end of this chapter, the story changes from these, you know, from the stories of Scripture to the martyrdom of the saints. I'll explain. Hebrews 11.1, 1, here's the definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the certainty or conviction of things that are not seen. For by it, the people of old received their condemnation. By faith, we understood that the, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, certainty of things that are not seen. So here's the deal, okay? The assurance of things hoped for, what are you hoping for from God? That's an important question. What are you hoping for from God? Are you hoping from God? What are you hoping for? Ultimately, the most important thing you need to be hoping for from God, if you're a Christian, is for the forgiveness of your sins and justification. Now, here's the deal. God's word says that you are already forgiven. God's word says that you are already declared righteous. But where are you right now? You are still on a sinful, fallen earth. You still have your sinful flesh to contend with. And you have to contend with the other sinners with whom God has placed you in the midst of. Right? Yeah, it doesn't look like heaven, does it? Yet, according to Scripture, according to what God has revealed, you are forgiven. You you are an adopted son or daughter of God. Plain and simple, straight up. So, do you see it now? No. Now we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith in the promises revealed in Scripture regarding our justification, our right standing before God, and and other things. Okay, And we also trust God to be our loving, caring, heavenly Father. And Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer um, for daily bread, forgiveness of sins, God's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. So basically, we trust God for everything that we receive from him and trust him even in circumstances that look dire and in circumstances that look contrary to what Scripture reveals regarding our status before God. Because it's really easy for each and every one of us, especially when things start to go wrong in our lives, our health starts to fail, to think that God is angry at us that we're not forgiven, that we're experiencing God's wrath in our lives. But Scripture says, no, 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 you're not experiencing God's wrath. Not like that. Christ suffered the wrath of God for you in, a, in, in, for you in your place. You are forgiven and you are a son of God. You are experiencing basically your sinful flesh, you know, being paid out its wages, right? Okay? But you, you're, you're right standing before God is sure. That's This is what this is talking about. This isn't talking about believing God for some crazy thing that you're supposed to do in your life. Not at all. 
Okay, so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things that are not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We weren't there when God created the universe. Yet by faith we know that this is true. So that what is seen, uh, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith. See, that's the idea. We are justified by faith. We are declared righteous before God by faith. You are not justified and declared righteous before God by works of the law, but by faith. I'll bring in some other passages a little bit later in the sermon, but this is what's going on here. Um, So without faith, it's, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice it doesn't say, and without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever wants to please God must think about doing the impossible, must have audacious dreams, must step out and believe that God's going to do the impossible. It's not saying that. It says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. This is Christianity 101, right? And um, that he exists and rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. No, I'm going to point something out here. Noah did not get a subjective liver shiver from God. Okay, this wasn't some. This it wasn't what like one day Noah woke up and said to Mrs. Noah, you know, you know, I just have this weird feeling that there's going to be a flood. You know, I, I think I'm going to have to go build an ark. It's kind of. I can't explain it. Just. You know, I'm just I'm thinking that there's there's a flood coming. It's going to overtake the whole world. No, 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 no. The word of God came in a very objective, not subjective way. There was no doubt in Noah's mind that he was hearing the very voice of God, and God warned him objectively, not through hints and, and premonitions and things like that. Uh, God warned him concerning the, uh, the the coming flood. Right. Um. So he, in fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he com- condemned the world and became the heir the righteous, of, of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So, again, so when the word of the Lord came to Abram, okay, and you see this throughout the book of Genesis, this was not some subjective thing where, you know, Abram wakes up in the middle of the night and says to Sarai, you know, I'm thinking we got to, we got to move. We need to move to, uh, you know, out of Haran and into Canaan. You know, it wasn't that. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a very objective, he had no doubt in fact, Abram spoke face to face with God on several occasions. Okay, so he was there was no doubt in his mind who he was hearing from, and Abram believed God 
and God credited his belief to him as righteousness, which becomes the foundation of our own righteousness. When we believe God for our forgiveness, God credits it to us as righteousness. That's what he, uh, Romans 3 and 4 teaches. Okay, For he was looking for that city whose foundations and designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Okay, So um, Sarah... Okay, she heard God tell Abram that she was going to conceive. Okay, it wasn't some I think I'm going to conceive kind of thing. Nothing like that. Therefore, from one man and and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These also died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. What things promised? Salvation, eternal life, the the, the promised seed who would uh, redeem the world, right? Okay, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Notice the faith here ultimately points us to the coming visible kingdom of God, right? By faith, Abram, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it, it, it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Again, notice some of the stuff is pretty common and ordinary. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus. Notice it skips over all the other exploits of uh, Joseph and just just, just right, right to the end. By faith, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Okay, by the way, Joseph didn't receive that prophecy originally. That was Jacob who received that prophecy, Israel. Joseph believing and trusting in that prophecy. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Notice here, it says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ so Moses trusted in the Messiah, greater than the wealth and treasure of Egypt, for he was looking for uh, to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You'll notice again, notice a theme here. Where did, where did Moses get this idea to put blood on the door for the Passover? That was a direct, objective word from God. Though no doubts here. This wasn't some subjective liver shiver. This was an objective word of the Lord, and he knew that God is the one who spoke these things to him. Remember the whole burning bush incident? God speaks directly to Moses in clear, 
clear ways, not through vague, mysterious dreams and visions and things like that. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? Now watch where this goes, okay? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Okay? So that you don't get the false impression that this passage is saying that you need to... Th- basically, God is ex- is waiting on you to have faith, to trust in him for the impossible thing in your life. The most miraculous thing, you know, whatever. Notice that it ends with, by faith people were flogged, imprisoned, put in chains, stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, right? So notice the common ending here. So the question is this. Okay, if we're to have faith in Christ, that's the who. What are we trusting him for? Okay, primarily we are trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins and a right standing with God that was won for us by him on the cross when he was pierced for our transgressions, when he was bruised for our iniquities. Okay. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. That's primarily what we are trusting God for. And by trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we then learn through the rest of Scripture that we can trust God even for good things, even to the point of our own death. Right? We trust God for our daily bread. We pray to him and petition petition him when we are sick and trust in him for good things even when we're well okay and when persecution arises we trust in god and trust in christ and do not abandon our faith and trust in god for good things even when our life com- lives get ter- turned completely upside down and confessing jesus would then lead to us being imprisoned tortured um mocked flogged, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, and killed with the sword, or and uh, zipped up in sheep and uh, goats and fed to lions. Right? That's what this passage is really all about. Okay? This isn't trusting in God for some impossible dream. And by the way, where then do we look for the clear promises of God in Scripture? By the way, Jesus promised 
that because they persecuted him, that we would be persecuted, because they crucified him, that we should expect persecution, hatred, and mocking, and stuff like that. So that's a clear promise that we have from Christ. Embrace it. You see what I'm saying? We continue. Even God, putting our feet where we're unsure of the territory into which we step is a very different thing than believing that he's a fluffy father in the sky. Believing God is easy, James tells us. He says that even the demons believe in God and they tremble. You see, simply believing in your head it's not a saving faith. A saving, one, a saving faith is one that believes God and acts according to his promises. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4.3. Abraham believed the seemingly impossible. His faith showed an overwhelming reliance and trust in God. But why is faith or believing God vital for a flourishing life. Well, firstly, Romans 14.23 tells us that everything that does not come from faith is sin. Whoa, whoa. Um, Yeah, Romans 14. If you have your Bible, um, head on over there. Why is having faith vital for a flourishing life? That's not what this text is saying. Romans 14 Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and will will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, for the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living." So why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then each enough of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother." I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So, by the way, Romans 14, what is this talking about? Um, this is talking, for the most part, about Jews who are eating kosher and uh, and also the thorny issue of what do you do about food sacrifice to idols and things like that. I mean, this is a this was a real thing going on here. Do Can I eat food sacrifice to an idol? 
Uh, do I have to observe these particular days? Things, you see what's going on? For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do, by what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual billing. Do not... Uh, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, uh, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." Yeah, Romans 14, verse 23, is the tail end of a long dissertation that we just read here in Romans 14. This isn't a, the reason why you have to have faith in order to have the abundant life is because whatever you, whatever is not from faith is sin. That doesn't make any sense, and that's not what this verse is saying. Uh, Ewan is uh, twisting God's word here. Let me back it up, and you can hear it again. Here we go. Overwhelming reliance and trust in God. But why is faith or believing God vital for a flourishing life? Well, firstly, Romans 14.23 tells us that everything that does not come from faith is sin. <gasps> wow. When I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, you dirty little sinner, you and McCray. Wow. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. What does that mean? That means that if you are somebody here this morning who has placed their faith in Jesus, if you call yourself a Christ follower, then your actions that are motivated by your faith and your trust in him are glorifying to him. They please him. But for the things that you do that are... This doesn't make any sense. I put it back in context and you can see what he's saying is not what that verse says. When you put it back in its context. Not motivated by what you believe in him, they are sinful. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot bear fruit. Sin. Now, now he's not quoting another verse out of context. Rip here, rip there, rip there, string them all together. As if somehow they're all teaching the same on the same topic and they're not causes fruitlessness on one occasion the disciples were unable to call out a demon from a young boy asking why they had been able unable to accomplish the task jesus said this he said well it's because you have so little faith truly i tell you if you have faith as small as a mustard seed you can say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move. And this is a great promise. Nothing will be impossible for you. What will be impossible for us? Nothing, Nothing will be impossible for us. Okay, again, this is out of context. Like, grossly out of context. Now, I don't know where you all are in your lives this morning. Maybe there is some immovable obstacle in the way. It seems overwhelming. It seems insurmountable, but you know what your faith does? Your faith makes the impossible possible. Oh, 
man. So are you facing an insurmountable problem? You just have to have enough faith to make your insurmountable problems surmountable. <sighs> this is not what the Bible teaches. This is very closely akin to the word of faith heresy. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Maybe this morning your prayer life feels unproductive. You desperately want to see God moving, but maybe there's a transition that you need to make. And maybe the transition that you need to make is from believing in God to believing God and walking in his promises. So apparently we got don't just believe in God, believe him and walk in his promises. Where do those promises come from, Ewan? Jesus also said, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. And, and do you know how the ancient church uh, understood that? Christostom, in, in his sermon on this passage that you're quoting from, I think it's Mark chapter 11, uh, he, he basically said that, and the Christians do more than move mountains and do greater things than Christ because every pagan who's brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is somebody who has been raised from the dead. That's how they understood the fulfillment of that. The disciples performed many miraculous demonstrations of God's power. But on one occasion in Nazareth, Jesus did not do many mighty works. Why was it? It was because of the unbelief of the people there. There is a dependency on us to believe because faith unleashes the miraculous. <coughs> faith unleashes the miraculous. Again, this is not based upon an exegete. Uh, he's not exegeting it from a passage in context. This is just these verses ripped out of context with this narrative around it. The ultimate miracle is a life that is given to Jesus. Salvation, it comes by faith. That's how God reveals himself to us. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. Yeah, quoting from the prophet Hosea, by the way, another perfectly valid translation from, of that verse in Romans, where it says the righteous will live by faith. This I think uh, this is the translation I prefer, and when I'm translating it, here's how I translate it: the one who is by, who is by faith, the one who by faith is righteous, shall live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. Not only does God reveal Himself to us by faith, but God expects us to live each day in faith. We're going to consider four attributes of faith this morning. So you can count me down, and I will tell you the numbers as we go, and I promise that this will only last between 35 minutes and two hours. <laughs> Jonathan does it, Selu definitely does it, so I'm doing it. But the first thing we're going to consider is faith is believing God when I don't see. Let's have a look at this video clip. So the first attribute is believe in God when you don't see. And now he's going to play a video clip from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's the uh, where uh, Indiana Jones has to take the leap of faith.
one hand to leap from the lion's head prove his worth. point something out here. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is not a biblical text. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Stepping out into the unknown and finding that when we step out in faith, we can move to the place that we want to get to. And yet, this is not taught from a biblical passage in context. What does Hebrews say about faith? One of the great verses of the Bible. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. And the assurance about what we do not see. That's one of those verses. And what is it that we hope for as Christians? What does God's word teach us to hope for? Isn't it that you try and memorize and you always get everything the wrong way around, but it's a wonderful verse. Now, I read a story recently about Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor was a very famous missionary. And on his way... I'm going to point something else out here. This story regarding Hudson Taylor is not found in the Bible, and this sermon illustration isn't hooked into any particular passage in context to help us understand what God's Word teaches. So this is, at this point, an anecdotal story that is floating in midair, supposedly to teach us what the Bible says, without a clear passage supporting what it is that he's about to say. To China, he came to a point in his voyage on a ship where he had to cross through a very narrow channel. Now, the channel was uh, between the southern tip of Malaya and the island of Sumatra. And as the ship entered the channel, the wind died down until it was nothing. Hudson was in his room when when the ship's captain came knocking urgently on the door. He said, Mr. Taylor... We need your help. Taylor said, what's wrong? He said, we have no wind. And we are floating towards an island where the people do not believe in God. They are heathen. And they are cannibals. We need your help. And Taylor said, well, what can I possibly do? 
And the captain said, well, I had heard that you're a man who fears God. I am. Well, can you pray for us? And Taylor said, I will pray, but there is a condition in my praying. And the condition is this. I need you to set the sail. And the captain said, but that's ridiculous. How can I set the sail when there's no breeze? If I set the sail, the sailors on board will think I'm a madman. But Taylor insisted that he set sail. And the captain agreed. 45 minutes later, the captain came back and he found Hudson Taylor kneeling on the ground praying. He said, Mr. Taylor, you can stop now because we have so much wind. We don't know what to do with it. And Taylor was not surprised. You know, before Karen and I came to the Island Man, we had to seek God's heart for our lives. What do you want us to do, God? We- now, this is where it's important to pay attention. He's, te- he's going to tell a story about his own life, and this reveals the so-called promises that we're supposed to have big faith for to unlock. This at least tells us the source of those. Where do you want us to be? We spent 18 months delegating, uh, deliberating about where we were going to be over the next couple of years. And it was a painful process. We had to get things rolling in order for us to go somewhere that we believed or we sensed that God was calling us to. And yet there was no writing in the sky. There was no pillar of fire. There was no hard evidence of God wanting us to go anywhere at all other than the smallest sense that he was moving. We had to come to the Isle of Man to look at the church. We had to submit a job application that was 19 pages long. It's ridiculous. I thought I was going to get a job with NASA or something. (laughs) I had to come over for an interview with eight people. What's that all about? Hated it. (laughs) And then I had to preach. And we still hadn't heard from God. But you see, I believe that what God expected of us to do was to get the sails up ready for the wind to come because we knew it was coming. God is never idle. God is always on the move. And yet so often we wait for him. We won't prepare ourselves to move. But he is always on the move. So God is always on the move. No passage says this. Okay. And yet we won't we won't prepare for him to whatever, okay? Um Abram didn't pack his bags to head for the uh, promised land until um God told him to move. Joseph didn't start saving up grain for the coming famine until God told him the famine was coming. Moses, well, he didn't um you know, put on his best clothes to uh, get ready to go and visit Pharaoh until God met with him in the burning bush. So, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about here. I, in fact, I'm, f- correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of anybody in the Bible that anticipated God's move prior to him telling him what to do. Y- you see what I'm saying? Let's not be a church like that. If you want to start a new ministry, step out in faith. Claim God's promises. Maybe you What promises? You're in the wrong job this morning and you're scared to move because you don't know what's going to happen to you. Oh, I don't know what would happen in the future. Maybe I wouldn't be able to earn as much money. What does God say? God says, for I know the plans I have for you. 
Yeah, that's Jeremiah 29.11 out of context. Folks, Jeremiah 29.11 was written to the exiles who were taken out of Jerusalem and out of Judea and were exiled in Babylon as as a result of the idolatry of of Judah. Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. What place? Jerusalem. Get it? This is not a promise for you and I in this sense. I mean, how many athletes did we see during the Olympics, you know, who had, you know, something about Jeremiah 29, 11 on their clothing or a tattoo or it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like their life verse. But I mean, this, huh, it's unbelievable. For, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You get it? We continue. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Over the next few years, this church is going to grow. All of our church sites are going to grow. Do you know why they're going to grow? They're going to grow because God is on the move in this island. And we've got... They're going to grow because God is on the move in this island. And apparently God has given a vision to their pastor, Jonathan. Got the sails up. But God moving and making your church bigger means this. It means that you're going to need to move to a bigger venue. And a bigger venue means bigger money. And now, this is the first allusion to this, which I think is the main reason for the sermon. you got to have faith in the impossible and listen to the voice and find where God is moving. Blackaby, think Blackaby, experiencing God here. Um, and what's, what, how do you do this? Money. This is ultimately, you're going to find this out as the sermon develops, Basically, a manipulative Bible twisting designed to get people to step up to the plate and give more money. Bigger money means that you need fewer Scottish people and bigger giving. (laughs) And bigger giving means that you need to take bigger risks. And if you're going to take bigger risks, you need bigger faith. (laughs) I love that man. Come to Peel. (laughs) <laughs> by faith Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger he, pre- he persevered because he saw him who is invisible he saw him who is invisible he kept his eyes fixed on the one that he couldn't see don't you love that how often do we fail to do that faith is believing what we don't see and do you know what the reward of faith is the reward is seeing what we believe second attribute of faith i get quicker as i go along because i speed up and talk more quickly are you coping with a scottish accent or would you like it a bit thicker this morning <laughs> so faith is obeying when i don't understand I didn't understand Glaswegians. That was faith, having conversation with Glaswegians, I'll tell you. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. What are we called to build? 
You should know the answer to this because, honestly, Jonathan drums it into Adrian and I. And I know he does here. What are we called to build? You're not Noah. The church. That is what we're called to build. Kingdom building is the only profession. Actually, the scriptures say that Christ builds his church. ...in the world that never ceases. It is never idle. There is always something to do because God's plan is always to advance. No matter how bad we are at doing it, his plan is to build the church. But you know, when we don't have the blueprint for what that's going to look like... By the way, it says that Christ is the one who builds his church. That's what it says in scripture. And he's not talking about your individual congregation being promised it'll be a mega church. The church is so much bigger than your little congregation. It means that we have to act in obedience, even when we don't understand. A number of years ago, my mum had an amazing experience. She has a gift that we call the gift of helps. Here we go again. Another experience. This is not a biblical story. But this is governing what we're supposed to be understanding, even though the point is not a biblical point. What's the point? Point number two, obeying when you don't understand. Faith is obeying when you don't understand. You got a biblical text that teaches this rather than a personal experience? She felt that the Holy Spirit was pressuring her to give a sum of money to a lady that lived in the village. Uh, where we stayed. Now, this lady, everyone knew, was the richest woman in the village. She owned gold mines in South Africa and other places around the world. She had need of nothing. And so my mum resisted. She thought, well, I'm not going to go and give her money because she's absolutely minted. (laughs) And she lay in bed night after night until the pressure became too much and the marriage began to fail. And her husband was saying, oh, woman... Just go and speak to her. What's the worst that can happen? So one day, she mustered up the courage and she went down to the lady's house. She didn't know her at all. She introduced herself. Hello, I'm Margot McCree of the clan McCree. And it's lovely to be here today. And she said to the woman, this is going to sound really silly. And she said, I'm actually very embarrassed, but I feel that I should give you some money. And the woman thought that was very interesting. And my mum began to say, I've been thinking about it for days, and I'm sorry I've left it so long, but I'd like to give you this check. Well, the lady almost fell over, and she explained that her businesses had recently gone bust, that she was absolutely ruined, that she had no money, that she had an outstanding electricity bill from the electricity board who were threatening to cut her electricity off later that week but what astounded her more was that when she looked at the amount of money on the check it matched to the penny the amount of money on the bill now i wonder if you've ever found yourself in a situation like that maybe god has spoken into your life but you're resisting maybe it's the fear of what people may think Or maybe it's just that you don't understand what God is trying to do. Maybe you don't respond because it just doesn't make sense. It could be that this morning you're sitting in church and you believe that God has spoken to you in the prophetic. He wants... 
and you believe God has spoken to you in the prophetic. This is breakfast with Jesus. So what is ultimately this about? Faith in the impossible and just trusting God for the promises. Where do we find these promises? Well, a subjective feeling that you believe God has spoken into your heart. Not what's written in in the word of God. Wants you to give a word to the church, but you don't necessarily understand why he wants you to do that. Maybe it's a prayer that he wants you to utter. Maybe it's a decision that he wants you to make in your life that you just don't get. You're too scared to speak out. You're timid. And you're scared because you don't understand. How did Noah feel when he was asked to build that mighty boat? The text doesn't say. It's best if we not speculate. He must have thought, this is crazy. He must have thought at times the people are right to scoff and laugh. But in his heart of hearts, he knew that he had to step out in obedience and to do what God was asking, even in a time when he didn't understand. And yet the text doesn't say that he didn't understand. It's pretty clear he understood exactly what was coming, a worldwide global flood, because he built a boat. It's pretty clear he had a very firm grasp as to the seriousness of this problem. It wasn't like God was vague regarding the details. and God, In fact, God was extremely specific, even giving dimensions for the boat and telling him how the animals were going to come to him, things of that nature. He, he understood it very clearly, and the reason he understood it clearly is because God communicated it clearly. When we respond in faith and when we trust God, we experience his blessings. Don't miss out on the best for your life. Don't miss out on God's purposes. Don't miss out on the best for your life. For your life, because you don't understand or you're scared what people think. Be bold. Be like Noah. Build the boat. Don't build a boat. But do what God is asking you to do. In your heart. Not in the text of the word of Scripture. The sure and certain word from God in the Bible. No, we're chasing after a feeling or a premonition or a hunch. If you serve God in the little things, he will add to you. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance And he went without knowing where he was going. When he was asked to leave Haran, I I dare say that Abraham didn't say to God, okay, well, look, this is the deal, Lord. I'll go if you tell me why I'm going, where I'm going to live, what you're going to provide for me. I need a job. I need finance. That wasn't Abraham. And that's the challenge to us this morning, isn't it? that we refuse sometimes to move forward with God because the risks are too high. And sometimes God doesn't let us in on the plan. But it doesn't mean that we don't follow through what he's planting in our heart of hearts. He is calling you all to live by faith. So will you go? The third attribute of faith this morning 
is that faith is confessing or announcing it to experience it. Now, this is a bit, it's a frighteningly name it and claim it thing, but before you all get concerned about okay, it. This is Stephen Furtick's theology here. You've got to confess it. The theology, we're going to explain this in a biblical context. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they had left. If we had Joseph's confidence in God this morning, if we believed like Joseph that God was good to his word, even after our bodies are in the ground, we would speak about him with a new boldness, would we not? We would have a different church. Faith is visualizing the future. No, he had a sure and certain word from the from the Lord, prophetic, and it wasn't subjective, it was objective. He knew that God was going to deliver them from Egypt. It wasn't because he was visualizing the future. It's that he believed what God said, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do the math and figure out what's going to happen. And bringing it into the presence. It's seeing the future in advance. It's seeing the future. No, he, it, he wasn't creatively visualizing the future. The future was revealed to him by God. Do you think you can creatively visualize what the future is going to be 400 years from now? Go ahead and try. In the present, every great achievement began when somebody saw something in advance. We didn't put a man on the moon until JFK said, let's put a man on the moon. The technology didn't even exist when he said that. What a ridiculous thing to say. Let's put a man on the moon. But that is vision casting. And that's what God does. God gives us vision for the advancement of his church. He gives- Did you hear that? Vision casting. God gives us vision for the advancement of his church. And he's using Joseph's example from Hebrews 11 to justify this. And this passage he's quoting here in Hebrews 11 isn't teaching this. Gives us a glimpse of what the church can be. He advances the church, though we are so bad at doing it. The church is still growing. And look at all the cock-ups over the years. That's God. Faith is visualizing a church in Ramsey. Faith is not, we don't have anyone to go there. How will we afford it? We don't have enough musicians. That's not faith. Faith is seeing this church the Douglas site, in a new premises. And it's not worrying about how you're going to afford it, but you're going to have to stump up. (laughs) But what faith really is, is buying me a new house. (laughs) And not asking why the other one hasn't sold yet. (laughs) But why not speak boldly? And if your words align with God's promises, he upholds what has been spoken. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. I just, I love Joshua because I just think, what would I have said 
if God had said, look, I will give you victory over the city. But it's simple. All you have to do is. But why not speak boldly? And if your words align with God's promises, he upholds what has been spoken. Whoa. If your words align with God's promises, he upholds what he has spoken. The Bible doesn't teach this, nor does Hebrews 11. Like I said, this is very, very akin and very close to the word of faith heresy. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. I just I love Joshua because I just think, what would I have said if God had said, look, I will give you victory over the city. But it's simple. All you have to do is walk around the walls and blow a few trumpets and then just shout at the walls and they will collapse. Oh, I can imagine my reaction to that. But Joshua believed God. He didn't believe in God. He believed God. For us to stride forward as a church, we need to be confident in what has been promised. When you, when you pray, you got to be confident in what has been promised. This is apparently the vision given to the head pastor, Jonathan. Pray, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Who said that? Jesus. That's what Jesus Another verse out of context said if it aligns to God God's promises and you pray it you will have it. So here's the formula. You receive a direct vision from God, a picture of the future. You believe the promises of God for this picture of the future, praying in faith that you and believing that you've already received it and then everything will line up and God'll give it to you. This is not a biblical teaching. I don't know what your impossible challenge is this morning, but what I do know is that when we confess God's promises, all things, all things are possible. The fourth attribute of faith is this. Faith is giving when I don't have it. Now you're discovering why the pastors have swapped sites. And here comes the real reason for the sermon. Money. But by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. Both offerings were acceptable. Okay, now this is based upon the Genesis 4 account, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, which, by the way, a lot of people biff. Um, I'll explain here in a second. I'm going to have to do just a little bit more biblical teaching on this. But I need you to pay close attention to his words they were the first fruits of the land for Cain and the first fruits of the flock for Abel. They were good offerings. But what made them acceptable to God was the way in which they were given. One man giving out of a sense of duty, one man giving out of a sense of the love that he had for his God. Okay. Um, what passage says that? Again, I, I asked the question because... When you look, you know, the Genesis 4 story is one that has baffled um, people for a long time, okay? Uh, the, the commentators are kind of like all over the map here, and I don't think it's all that difficult to tease out. 
Okay. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. Now, it's important to note in the Hebrew here that uh, uh, Eve's um, exclamation regarding Cain um, there was a the, the the Hebrew text really strongly doesn't imply it. I mean, just it's kind of overt. Uh, she she was really hoping that she had given birth to the Messiah. That's what's going on here. I mean, Cain's name is amazing. Abel is like blah. Okay. All right. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. I'm going to point something out here. Even though we're dealing with two different languages, where does this regard language again appear? It appears when the uh, the angel Gabriel appears to the the Virgin Mary to announce to her that she's going to conceive and give birth to the Son of God. Okay? And in uh, the Magnificat, uh, you know, and and Mary's response is, you know, that that the Lord has had has had regard for her. Okay, there's uh, there's something going on here. Okay, so we got we got Cain offering the first fruits of of the ground, Abel offering, you know, uh, a, basically a sacrificed lamb. Okay, so Cain was very angry. His uh, uh, and his face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will not will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it." Okay. Now, that's the account of the offering. Okay. It doesn't say that God commanded them to give any particular thing. It doesn't say that. Okay. It doesn't say that at all. Hebrews eleven six gives us the key to understanding this. But let me let me point out a little bit of gospel in this text, though. All right, so verse eight. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, "Where is Abel your brother?" He said, "I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper?" The Lord said, "What have you done?" The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said, No, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put on, put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay? Stop there for a second. So Cain kills Abel. Christ confronts Cain. Cain denies the crime, and then asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to the question, by the way, is yes, you are. We are called to love God and love neighbor. Yeah, the 
The answer is, yeah, duh, you are your brother's keeper. That's the law. Love God, love neighbor. To protect your neighbor is really the gist of that. Okay, Protect him in his being, protect him in his possessions, protect his good name. Those are the ideas here. Okay. So what happens? God punishes him, and he says, no, no, this is too much. Somebody's going to, you know, what's going to happen? People will want to kill me. Okay, but he just murdered his brother. Okay, but watch this. God puts a mark on Cain to protect him. So Christ himself becomes Cain's keeper. Irony of irony, and that is mercy, that is grace, and that is gospel. Now, let me roll up from here and take a bigger look at the overall all picture. Each and every one of us, born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. Each and every one of us, even if we haven't physically murdered somebody, we're all guilty of murdering. Okay? Because hating your brother is guilt is you know is being guilty of murder. You know, saying to him, Raka is is guilty of murder, right? Okay? We're all guilty of this. And yet God is our keeper because when we're baptized, we're baptized into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the way the ancient church has talked about this is beautiful, okay? We're baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God puts his name on us. Each and every one of us who are baptized are marked. We're marked in a similar way, okay? We're marked with the very name of God being put on us in our baptisms. We're named and marked with the name of the triune God. So God is our keeper. This is all, there's, there's allusions to the gospel here. Now, I put that all in there to, you know, to basically say, okay, we've read the story. We've looked at the details. It doesn't say there was a commandment. Okay, the Scholars argue back and forth. It just says that in the course of time, Cain brought fruit. Abel brought a sacrifice lamb. God, Christ, had regard for Abel, okay? Now, here's the idea. Scripture interprets Scripture. And Jesus himself speaks of righteous Abel and uh, and his blood as well, okay? Jesus, in Matthew 25, when he's calling down woes, Matthew 25, the verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood of, shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Okay, Matthew 25, 35, Jesus makes it clear that Abel is righteous. Abel is righteous. So we know that about Abel, that Christ has declared him to be righteous. Now, this is where more scripture interpreting scripture comes in play. Romans 3, 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means to be declared righteous in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we know this. Christ calls Abel righteous. 
He is righteous Abel. And Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Okay? Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith that is in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. Okay, so you get what's going on here? So we know this, that Jesus says that Abel is righteous. Not that he was from the blood of righteous Abel, he is still currently righteous. He is declared righteous. He is righteous forevermore. Okay? So now we can come back to Hebrews 11. Okay? How then is Abel declared righteous? Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. So he's declared righteous by faith. Abel trusted in the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He trusted in God for mercy and forgiveness, and he was declared righteous, which is why his gift was received. It wasn't received because he did something right. He was, it was received because he trusted and he was declared righteous as a result of his faith. You get it? That's the idea. So this is important to all keep it, keep it sorted out and keep it straight because... Um, you know, you don't want to go beyond what Scripture says, and you want to make sure that you stay within the guidelines that Scripture gives regarding salvation and righteousness. We continue. Billy Graham tells a great story about a little boy who was mucking around at home one day. I can even remember doing this myself. But the little boy had gone into the living room of the house, and he'd found the most expensive vase that he could find. He lifted it and he shoved his hand into the vase. And his dad came through and said, Oh, you shouldn't have that vase, son. I can't let go, Dad. It's stuck on my hand. The father thought, Okay, let's try and pull it out. So he tried to get his son's arm out of the vase. It wouldn't budge. He thought about breaking it, but he was Scottish and he thought, Well, I can't do that. And then a brainwave came to him and he said, son, I've got an idea. Do what I do. Stretch your fingers out like that and your hand will slip out the vase. But to his astonishment, the little boy, who was definitely Scottish, said, I I can't do that, dad. Why can't you do it? Because if I do that, I will drop the pound coin that's in my hand. (laughs) But you see, all too often... That is our attitude as well. We cling to the riches of the world. I'm sure that many of you tithe to the church, and that's great. But when faith is exercised, our attitude shifts from being like the attitude of Cain, who gave out of a sense of duty, give 10%. It's your tithe. Okay, the text doesn't say 
that. What's obvious is that Cain doesn't have faith. Forget it. We want to see faith giving like Abel that is generous, that is of the heart because we want to invest in what God is doing. We want to be... Boy, this is a complete twisting of this story of Cain and Abel. Be like the widow who gave when she had nothing. And sometimes when we hold the riches of the world in our hands, we are just like the little boy. So this is the gist of this. This is the real reason for the sermon to basically give some kind of a teaching. You got to muster up in impossible faith. And the way you're, you're going to demonstrate that you have this impossible faith is to write a check. Trapped. But when we let go, we can experience true freedom. Yes, just let go of your money. From time to time, you probably hear Jonathan, most of the time you probably hear Jonathan harping on about tithing. And that's a good thing. So he should. But Abel offered the first fruits. He gave the best of what he had to God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. No. He wasn't credited as righteous because of what he did. Scripture says, by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. No one is justified, not even Abel. He's declared righteous by faith. That's why Christ had regard for his offering. What you just said is the exact opposite. You're teaching works righteousness and twisting these passages. But Abel offered the first fruits. He gave the best of what he had to God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, tithing is not about impressing your friends. It's not about satisfying some form of guilt. Tithing is about giving the best of what you have to a God who sees that as righteous, as credible. That's salvation or justification by works, not by faith. And the whole point of Hebrews 11 is without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're going to encourage faith giving. Let's not even call it tithing. Let's give from our faith. That is what generosity really is. A few months ago, one of the pastors in the church decided and felt called to give some money to one of the people in their congregations. And so the pastor checked the bank account and thought, well, can probably squeeze a little bit extra out and gave a gift to a person in the congregation. And the pastor felt terrific about that until the middle of the month came when the pastor suddenly realized that bank accounts don't always respond to faith, or so he thought. And so he began to pray, Lord... I have done what I thought was right in your eyes. I have given out of faith, but I need the money back. And two days later, the pastor went home, and there was a white envelope at the door of his house. Okay, another anecdotal, non-biblical story. And in it... These stories are not normative for Christians, by the way. 
your life stories or anybody else's life stories are not the source for sound biblical doctrine. It was three times as much money as he had given away. You see, God blesses when we give. Now, I don't want you all rushing out today and go, oh, guaranteed money. I'll give it, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to give it all away. That's not the point. The point is that it belongs to God, and we give with generous hearts. Paul said of the Macedonians, For I can testify that they are not only what they could, that they gave, not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. Now I want and, and that was to people who were experienced Christians, Christians in the churches in, in Jerusalem, Judea, who were experiencing famine. And the churches from around the Mediterranean gave in order to support their brothers and sisters in Christ who were suffering from famine. Why didn't you put that into there? I want to give you a special thank you this morning because you guys are amazing. The way you give is incredible. And quite frankly, the Peel site would not be possible without the generosity of this church. We are in your debt. And we love you for it. I would not be here if you did not give so generously. But what about Ramsey? What about a new pastor? What about your building fund? What about new ministries? Guys, if we believe that God has big plans for his church on the island, then we need to give. There are great projects that can happen, but a part of each project is in your pocket. We need to step up this year. The great heroes of the faith described in Hebrews 11 began works that they didn't even see come to completion. But they started them because they knew that God was good to his word. We have a promise this morning that God will build his church. It yeah, they have a promise regarding their individual congregation, apparently, directly from God, given by vision to Jonathan. Will build, it will bear fruit. So why not make a kingdom investment and give in faith with real generosity? So notice, you've got to give in faith and real generosity, and this entire teaching, this pitch for money, is built on twisted scriptures, built on a false reading of God's word. Why would God have somebody twist his words to have you give money. But maybe this morning you're thinking, well, that all sounds good. But I, I just don't have that sort of faith. So how can I build faith like that? Well, the Bible says this. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We need to get God's word into our minds. We need to know what God's promises are. How can we know what to expect of God if we don't know what he's promised? Where can you hear God's word? That is uh, an open question. Where can you hear God's word? Church. Church. Where else? Small groups. Ben Halpin, you're on a roll. Can anyone beat Ben Halpin in another one? Where else can we hear God's word? Church. Open the Bible. 
small groups. Guys, these are the things we need to be doing. I know it gets boring hearing us harp on about small groups and going to church regularly, but we say it because we want you to experience a full life. We want you to have an abundant life in God. We want you to have an abundant life. John 10.10, out of context. God, And you will only experience that if you're walking in faith. And your faith grows by being where God's word is, whether that's in your bedroom during a quiet time, whether it's in a... Well, it's not at this church because the two instances of sermons I've reviewed have both been bad teachings, not sound teachings. In a small group with your friends, whether it's in fellowship groups, whether it's singing songs with a worship group, it doesn't matter. But we need to get God's word into our minds. D.L. Moody said this, I prayed for faith and thought that someday it would come down and strike me like a bolt of lightning. But faith didn't seem to come. One day I read in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. Now I opened my Bible and I began to study and faith has been growing ever since. If you want to see your faith deepen, strengthen, mature, increase, you need to listen to God's word. I completely agree with this point. That's why they ought not to be in that church, because God's word is not being rightly taught and preached. But as we said earlier, faith is not passive. Faith is an active attitude. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He reminded us that hearing the word must be accompanied by acting upon the word. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man that built his house on sand. And again, I would point out, you keep ripping passages out of context. You're not teaching these passages in context, and you're hanging these out of context verses together as if they all go together in this way. They don't. Maybe this morning God has challenged you to go further. You believe in God. It's a good start. But maybe what God wants you to do is to act in your belief. Is to step out in faith in him. And write a big check. And it's a, it's a step-by-step process. For many of you, you're going to do the parish walk. Are you going for it this year, Sally? Yeah, how many miles this year? <laughs> You're a wise man. Wise man. Yeah, if you don't know what the parish walk is on the Isle of Man every year, n- n- middle of the summer, near the summer solstice time, I guess, uh, they, it's like an 88 mile walk. And I mean, you, you got to walk it. So there's speed walkers who do this. And they, you know, they finish in like 16, 17 hours, the people who who win this race, this parish walk. But. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. But what Selu's going to do is he's not just going to turn up and walk the parish walk, are you? You're going to train. Yeah. That, that was an instruction, not a question. <laughs> 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 
And that's what it's like. That is what faith is. It's a training process. It's a step-by-step process. You may not do the full 88 miles straight away, but you can walk 19. And it can build. Maybe next year it's going to be 32 miles. But a step of faith can help in every situation of your life. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a relationship that is struggling and you just can't see how it can possibly turn around. It turns around by being faithful, by unleashing the miraculous. If it's a dead end Unleash the miraculous. Job, God has promised a secure future for you. He, really? The animals don't worry about what they will wear. The lilies are beautiful. God is looking after us and we have to work and step out in faith. Maybe it's dealing with grief or loss. Even the pain of that has already been dealt with on the cross in Jesus. There is nothing, nothing that is impossible for our God. Is that wonderful news this morning? Nothing is impossible for God. Maybe your faith is tiring. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, pray without ceasing. How often do we give up on prayer? You know, I got to interrupt one more time. In listening to um, Ewan's twisting of this passage, it reminds me of Satan's temptation of Jesus. Let me read to you from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. He had just been baptized to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the important one. Watch this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands you they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Now, that is fascinating, and I'll tell you why it's fascinating, because here, the devil is taking Jesus to the top of the temple and basically saying, listen, God's word says he's going to command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Just have audacious faith, Jesus. Take a leap of faith. That's what the devil is tempting Jesus to do, and he's quoting I should point out that he's misquoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Okay? Listen to it in context. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan omitted some stuff. The to guard you in all your ways part. He ripped Psalm ninety one eleven out of context and then hooked it up to Psalm ninety one twelve and omitted an important piece of data. 
He ripped it out of context in order to create the impression that God's word teaches, hey, listen, Jesus, you can jump off the temple mount and, hey, the angels are going to lift you up. But that's not what Psalm 91, 11 and 12 teaches. When you add the part that Satan omitted, it's clear that's, you know, that nowhere in Scripture does it teach such a thing. And Jesus said, and Jesus said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Mm -hmm. This sermon we're hearing from Ewan is the same tactics that the devil used against Jesus, that second temptation to throw himself off the Temple Mount. Same tactic, same message almost. Come on, just have enough faith. Trust the word of God. Jump, Jesus, jump. And yet those verses were ripped out of context, and Jesus knew how to counter it with sound passages in context, saying what they need to say. Ewan is actually playing the role here of the devil in the temptation against Jesus. And unfortunately, it sounds pretty clear by the amens and the people, you know, applauding what uh, Ewan is saying, that they don't even realize that they're being duped by out-of-context verses to do something that God's Word is not commanding them to do. How often do I give up on prayer? Lord, answer me in a week, because after that, I, I lose focus, I lose concentration, and then I forget what I'm supposed to be praying about. Faith is about sticking in. It's about being committed. What I'd like you to do this morning, I would never normally ask people to stand. But if you want to move forward in your faith, if you feel that God is challenging you this morning about your attitude towards him, whether it's in giving, in relationships, in commitment to church, in commitment to him, if you want to move forward this morning in your faith, please stand. Stand. That's where we want to be. We want to be a church that is built on faith, that is wonderful. A church that is advancing, that is capturing territory because God is with us and he has promised that he will build this church. Let's pray together. Yeah, done. No, he hasn't promised to build your unique congregation, individual. He's promised to build his church and it's bigger than your congregation. So there you go. Uh, the reason I circled back is because, you know, like I said, this is a quintessential type of sermon that completely, completely mangles God's word and teaches falsely regarding faith and what it is that God expects from you. And the sad part is, did we hear about Christ and him crucified for our sins? No. Did we get sound doctrine? No, no, we got a false teaching that was more akin, and I mean this literally, more akin to the temptation of the devil uh, of Jesus when he put him up on the top of the Temple Mount. Th- that was, it, that's what it was more akin to than a sound biblical teaching about what the Bible really says regarding what faith is. Sad. Pray for the folks there in the Isle of Man who are attending this church. They're being deceived by a false teacher. All right, so we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. We'd love to get your feedback on anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. 
Or you follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy of one by Jesus Christ, as by Carrie's death on the cross, for all of your sins. Amen. Mm-hmm.